friends. Welcome back to the show. Today, I I am joined all the way from Hawaii by my friend Kevin Sweeney. How are you, man? Good, man. I appreciate the effort in you, you know, adding the okina and having the pause between the two eyes. That'll be appreciated by people listening here locally. You, you notice that, right? Like, I don't even know I what mean, the word is. Des- it? Despite whatever I would say about the execution, just the intention, you know, is appreciated <laughs> by, by people here. <laughs> Oh, just oh, the well. effort of you doing that is meaningful so there you go yeah well i, I don't think i'm ever going to be confused as a local uh from hawaii i think i'm all, what is it uh holly what do they call the white uh, white people holly like yeah like I, I can't even say that right yeah well there's yeah okay in a in the you ever seen the movie the north shore it's the famous like 80s movie about out here yeah classic guy from arizona comes out here and the first time he goes to serve, you know, a local guy is like, like something like, bro, like this, this Howley. And then he doesn't even know. So he's like, Howley to you too. And the guy's like, bro, this guy is so Howley. He don't even know he's Howley. Yeah, he don't even know. No, so he don't even know. Go, I yeah. was uh, with some buddies. I, I was finishing up a workout last week. One of my buddies said, hey, let's go get some tacos next door. There's a, a taco trailer. And uh, so we go over there. And the guy, he's from Mexico, and he's like, uh, have you ever had blah, 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 tacos? I was like, I, I don't even know the word you just said. <laughs> he goes, dude, you're such a gringo, man. And it's cactus tacos. I was like, bro, I yes, what made you think I'm not a gringo? And <laughs> so he's talking Spanish to the guy who's working there, and he said something like, do you want this drink? And it's, um, it's like rice milk or something like that. Mm, like and they both just laugh because I'm like, dude, I don't, yeah, or chata. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. I was like, bro, what made you think that I wasn't? A gringo. Like, and, and I then, never communicated anything other than... And then he saw you put ketchup on your taco, and they just threw you out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bro. Like, I live in Texas. I know better than to put ketchup on a taco. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not... Like, I'm two steps removed from that. And so, I appreciate that you saw my attempt, at least, to respect yeah. the land that you live in. Mm, yeah, I appreciate that. But, no, nah, man, I'm... I've said this to, hopefully, almost everybody who had me on, but to be a first-time author... And to have anybody bring me on is like really meaningful to me. And even in this transitional stage of my life, you know, with imagine ending and going to this, it's not just steps towards the book being released, which it was two days ago, but it's all small steps towards this unknown, mysterious next part of my life. So, you know, going back and forth, Matt, I'm grateful to, to be on here with you. Yeah, right on, man. Well, Imagine uh, was a community that you guys found about a decade ago, and uh, we'll probably get into that more later. But I'll tell you the reason why you're on the on the podcast, because like, having a podcast that's been around for a few years like mine, uh, publicists reach out all the time. There's a lot of books that are coming out. People you know, need to get ears on the work that they're trying to share. And so it's pretty like normative every day to get at least a book pitched my way. Mm. And I'll tell you the reason like you're on is because you have more like game than anyone else. Like you, you get my number from Steve Carter, you're texting, you're like inflating my ego, you're going with like I think you referred to me like as like the, the prince of the evangelical world or fun you just, I was like, dude, this guy, he's flattering me, he's going to my ego. Like that's the reason why we're talking right now. Just because your pitch to get on is better than literally anything I've seen in eight years of doing this. You know, I ha- as a first-time author with not a large machine behind me, I have to be able to leverage and utilize whatever I got and what I lack in financial or institutional resources <laughs> I make up for with, you know, likability and humor. So I just, I was like, <laughs> this text, this ridiculous 
joking, insane text I'm about to send yeah. is going to make or break our relationship for the future. I took a risk and it worked out and that's how love works. It, yeah. You got to take a risk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. I, you know what? You were, you're just a boy saying at the door asking a podcaster to love you. And you know what? I'm saying yes to that. That is a Notting Hill reference in case anyone didn't get that. But uh, you did. Like I've never called someone on the phone like we were texting i was like i mean we're gonna just talk and I've never done that before so i'm just saying uh you won me over and i hope that my listeners have the same experience of being won over by you even though like i kind of did you dirty today i had a little scheduling issue some work stuff went longer was in a meeting was in a school can text out and so you were literally waiting for 30 minutes and i felt like i was the worst person to you this entire week by wronging you by making you like feel like i stood you up because i didn't only to find out Luckily, I'm not the meanest person to you this week. You got your car stolen yesterday, and that makes me feel better about standing you up or at least being 30 minutes late. The day after my book is released, I go to surf and I come back and my car is gone. And my wife and I only have one car that we share and drive. So our only car we drive is gone. And then instead of practicing the compassion he probably preaches about to his congregation, instead of standing in solidarity with me and offering a pastoral word, Luke feels better about the fact that him standing me up for that much time wasn't as bad as that. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's oh, that's exactly. <laughs> I am not the mystic that I need to be. Luckily, uh, the making of a mystic is literally in my hands right now. Your new book, so this is going to help me develop that inner nice. life, so that I can become that person. I'm not there right now. I'm just saying where I am right now. I live on comparison, mm-hmm. and so to compare myself to a thief, specifically a car thief. I feel pretty good about myself. Yeah. So just like the uh, the person standing there saying, dear God, thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there. I am like that Pharisee. And that was the point of that story was this is the one you're supposed to be like. This, this is how when things get hard, especially when you're at fault, you can turn it in a way that actually allows you to move forward without having to, you know, take responsibility or feel bad. So that's how I always read it, at least. <laughs> <laughs> I think Jesus would be really proud of, of, of how I did that. So, yeah, right on. Right on. Okay, I do. Uh, let's jump in to the, to the book. Um, obviously, the title of the book is The Making of a Mystic. I think it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. Most of my listeners are probably familiar with the word mystic, but I don't know how many of us have like a strong working definition for what you actually think a mystic is. Mm. So could you give us like a working definition to start with? Yeah. Yeah, I would say in a simple sense, a mystic is one whose experience is not primarily defined by a set of beliefs. It's defined by direct experience of the sacred So it's an Mm -hmm. immediate knowing of God, which for the mystic to know God is actually foundationally to be known by God. So the mystic is the one whose Mm -hmm. primary sense of self is this set of eyes at the center of the universe who see us and to see us as a fixed point of love and this gaze of love that never changes. So the mystic is the one who knows in the immediacy of their heart. Like I would tell people the mystic, is one who doesn't have to hold on to anything because they trust they are being held by everything. So it's a being known by, it's a being loved, it's a being seen, and it's a direct experience of the sacred that is the foundation for the mystic before, beneath, and beyond any of the beliefs they might happen to have. So the direct knowing Mm -hmm. is the thing. That is the The, thing beneath all of the things. Is to know. Yeah. I think it was Calvin who talks about the journey to knowing God and your true self is the same journey. 
Um, because to know who absolutely. God is, to be known, is actually how we know who we are. It's like the foundation of everything. So even you hear hints of that sort of mystic understanding in John Calvin, who most people probably aren't going to refer to as a mystic uh, in a, any traditional definition of the word, but yet that understanding of being known is foundational. Now, it, it's interesting you said you don't have to hold on to anything because you are known. How does a mystic respond when their car gets stolen while they're surfing? If you want to hold on to your possession like a car, I would be upset if my vehicle got stolen. Like, seriously, like, as you think through this as a person who's writing about, like, your book just, just coming out, like, yeah, no, what's it's your a thought good process? Question. I think it's funny. You know, I, I do not have a mind that does any tit for tat. Why did this happen? Is there a reason yeah. why something like everything just is that happened? Because we live in a world where that happens. And so for mm. me, like, when I happen, now, obviously, I'm, I have a wife, I'm in a relationship, so I'm also carrying that with her, and she can respond, we all respond differently to things. But when I'm coming home, I think, well, I have an Instagram Live at 3 o'clock that I still want to do, and I'm not upset to the point where I can't do it, and that happened, and that doesn't negate the joy of this week of my book coming out. It doesn't take away from it. There's no all-or-nothing thinking. There's no part of me that has to ask why it just happened. And the mystic, the fruit of when I talk about the foundational experience of a mystic and knowing God is the mystic is a person who can live with no resistance. And a mystic is one who can, who knows how to embody pure acceptance because mm. they can accept reality for what it is. They, the mystic is the one who can consistently die to and let go of any expectations they had on how life's supposed to work in order to embrace life for exactly what it is in order to keep moving forward. So how does the mystic respond mm. to car getting stolen? Being like, okay, that happens. I'll, I'll do the work, yeah. you know, file a police report, but th- there is no why for me. There is no trying to understand cosmic leveraging or why something happened. It just is what it is. And, we just keep moving forward. Hmm. I, I didn't even tell Steve and the people on there. I didn't tell them until after when I texted him. But you just, I have, you know, it's a busy couple of days. I have to plan a book release event. And I have to do all the legwork for that. And I don't have a car. And my mom rented a car because she's visiting. But it, you just miss, there's a subtle smile that has been passed down organically through the perennial tradition of mystics historically. Where, you know, mystics can laugh at sort of the cosmic sense of humor of those types of things. You know, your ego might want to contract and get upset or get stuck there for a while. But then when you can sort of uncoil and release and relax into the spirit again, you're like, it's okay. Everything isn't good, but everything's okay. And the mystic can, can live that out. Hmm. You said you didn't give in to all or nothing thinking. How would you describe and define what all or nothing thinking is? Well, I think specifically in that moment, I could imagine how a person, when something goes wrong, they feel the negativity, the darkness, the bad thing, then negates the good things. You know, it's like when someone has a bad things happen to them in a day, it's like, I just want this day to be over to start again tomorrow because this whole day is bad now because this one bad thing happened. And I say, no, that one bad thing happened within the context of the reality that life is a gift itself. And when that bad thing happens, you can face it, you can feel it, you can accept it, you can let go of the need for your reality to be any different than what it is right now. And in that place of acceptance, you can still be okay, filled with joy and through the acceptance right here and right now. So the mind or the ego that might want to say, well, my book came out and this happened. It's so bad. And like, God's doing this, or this takes away my joy from the book. No, this is 
this happens within the larger container of joy. Like that's something I've discovered along the way is acceptance is a container that can hold together joy and pain, light and darkness, suffering and good things. And the acceptance is the container that can shake all of that up and transform it into one thing, which is your life. And it doesn't mean you enjoy every one of those things to the same degree, but you do have to learn to accept and embrace all of those things wholeheartedly to allow it all to exist in the larger container of joy. So it's like that happened and it doesn't take away from the bad. It just happened, you know, and we live in a world where that happens. Oh, that's really good. I, I think the word religion comes from the idea of like to rebind, like to re-ligament, I think is actually the etymological history of it. But uh, like healthy religion brings everything together. And so the idea of it, this is all part of what it is, life, acceptance pulls everything together. It doesn't disqualify the joy of what life is, but it, it is part of the experience. It's part of the human experience just to have all those things together. Uh, that, that's a great definition. The cr- I like that. To, I've, you know, this is like a, not, not, a subtle, not a subtle flex, but, you know, a glimpse for the future. The second book I have coming out in January is called The Joy of Letting Go. Like how, mm. and it's about how letting go is not one thing we do. Letting go is that which holds together everything we do. And letting go always yeah, yeah. involves acceptance. So I could say about acceptance as well. And to me, the cross is an icon of acceptance. Hmm. The, Roar the, says all spirituality is about letting go. And then, but like I'm going with like the idea of the cross is like on the cross, like Jesus lets go, not just of his breath, but his humanity, his life. Like, I, I think, yeah, that's a great, to me, the cross like, is a icon. radical icon of acceptance of this is happening. Love is here for you. And yet you are now crucifying love. And it's through the acceptance of the reality of a situation at its worst, that death comes that you break through and you're allowed to trust the death all the way through to resurrection. So to me, beneath the surface of everything is like, I, for me, I'm like acceptance and letting go is everything. It's the last hmm. thing people want. And the one thing we need to be free in this world. And that's not what the first book's about, but you can definitely feel the energy and you feel that dynamic through the book yeah, yeah, where yeah. so much of it is, you know, is, is, that subtle art of letting go all of a sudden gives birth to everything you were you were hoping for that you were clinging on to things that were getting in the way of everything you wanted in the first place for sure for sure jesus is like if you want to follow me you have to die to yourself mm. you said it's the last thing people want to do but it's what's like most neat i forget exactly your verbiage mm. why do you think it's so hard for us why, why don't we want to do that I mean, mystics know all to me, all mystics know that death is the secret to life or death is the key to life. Hmm. And our ego will avoid acceptance, letting go. Those, those all involve death. And so hmm. why do we avoid letting go? Well, one, cause you have to embrace the death and, and go through that. Why do we avoid letting go? Cause to, to practice acceptance, there's always something really hard you have to feel. You know, when I use this four part movement, when you talk about real forgiveness and letting go is the find you have to find it, you face it and you feel it. And only then can you forgive it. But you have to feel it all the way through. When you ask the question, if you really want to talk about letting go, what do I have to accept here? Oh, this one time where this person betrayed me, 
I think I'm wrestling with that person individually, but what I'm really wrestling with and what I really have to accept is that hard reality that we live in a world where I can give my heart to people and they still might not reciprocate it and they might crush me or betray me in the end. That is a hard thing to accept about life, but that is a Mm -hmm. part of life. But if I can accept that and feel the loss of my illusions, the death of my illusions, the death of the way I thought it was supposed to be, all these things that have protected me for a while and given me a sort of skewed way of viewing reality, if I can accept that and feel that death all the way through, then it's always resurrection. But we have such a hard time crossing over that threshold from acceptance and dying into the uncontrollable light of resurrection. But for me, I'm like, that's the story we live in. When we're just, it's scary. It's scary to, to trust that there's more life on the other side of that. You know, we white knuckle and cling to the very things that are getting in the way of us being free again and again and again. You know, the only things you ever let go of are the things that are getting in the way of your freedom. And that's the journey of the mystic is, I think in the intro, I say like to be a mystic is to attend your own funeral over and over and to discover that the funeral is actually the entrance to the party. That's, that's what faith is. To Such me. a good line. That's what faith yeah. is. That's when faith has real teeth. It's not, do you believe X, Y, and Z about Jesus? It's when you come to the edge of the old thing, will you let go, accept and surrender that and not trust in your theology of God, but actually trust in the active present alive spirit to carry you through. That's where this all matters. And that's what the story I think is pointing us toward. Yeah. Can we go back to the feeling part? So before we can feel it, uh, give me the four again. So you f- finding, find it, face it, feel it. Finding, facing, okay. feeling, and then it's forgiving and, and then only f- then. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've, one of the things that makes me feel like that's such a true thing is in my experience, I find myself with, uh, with anger about things. And I understand that anger is a shallow emotion. And mm-hmm. that if I go underneath anger, it's usually pain and it's mm-hmm. pain that I don't want to feel. And mm-hmm. so I'd rather be angry at someone than to feel how I feel because of whatever transpired and anger holds on, but forgiveness helps you move on and you can't move on unless you felt it first. And so like, I think the way that you name that is so true to my experience of, I, like I have to feel rejection. I have to feel betrayal. I have to feel those things before I can ever talk about forgiveness. Mm. Yeah, I, for, I think it's. I think it's in the first book. I honestly forget if it's in the first or the second one. But it to me, you need to say it's the first one because people can't buy the second one. So just pretend like yeah. It's in the so first whatever one. I'm about to say, even if it's not there specifically, the wisdom of it is definitely throughout the whole thing. There you go. There you go. And all right. As we get older, I'm 37, I think one of the most spiritually mature things that we have to learn how to do, especially for leaders, or or if not especially, it's very true for leaders, is to just feel our own feelings. Like, Hmm. that is the thing. You know, sometimes it's like, if you don't do that, what do you have to feel? Well, that's the question, because that's unconsciously what you're trying to avoid is that thing. And, oh no, I did... This is in the first book, so he's totally right. First book, so go get it. The Making yeah. of a Mystic. This is in there, but I have a book in there. Are you? Do you curse on here or not? Because then I could bleep it out if not. Well, what I do and what you do are two different things. So go ahead. You follow your heart. Okay. So I have a chapter. <laughs> I have a chapter in the book called "Feeling Shitty," and mm-hmm. it's about for me how we all have moments where we just feel like that. You know, where you're. You have these emotions where you just feel, but you all, there's a lot of things connected with that. 
We thought the thing we started would be further along than where it is three years into it. We thought the nature of this creative partnership was supposed to look like this. And it's not as a pastor, you thought I or the church is supposed to be here at year four and it's not. And you feel a certain way about that. You feel, you know, not great about that. And I, I tell this story, this is early on life of imagine still meeting in our home. We met there for like 16 months before we went to a public space. And it was just one of those Monday mornings where I'm just feeling shitty. You know, that's why I called the chapter that. And as I was sitting there in those feeling that and thinking about things, all of a sudden, unconsciously, this like amazing idea started to form in my mind, which like, you know, this idea that's unfolding like in a, in a, in a snap of a fingers. And this idea is like, this is the thing that's going to change this. This is the thing that's going to help us, whatever this grow. And this is the thing that's going to help us evolve or whatever it is. And then as I was thinking that, and I came back to a more centered place, I thought one, it's interesting how like maybe, and that could be a good idea, but I'm like, it's fascinating how me and my imagination going on that hypothetical journey of creating that idea became a preventative way to, for me to avoid feeling the feelings that I'm feeling right now. This idea was this imaginative, I'm feeling low and maybe I'm not doing as good as I should be. But this idea is the thing that's really going to take us there and unconsciously convince myself that I am doing enough. Or I can sit here and not try to achieve and build my way out of these negative feelings. And I can actually sit with them long enough. Like I said, practice acceptance, feel them all the way through. It's almost like you fall through your feelings onto the ground that is always made of grace. I can achieve my way out of them and thus avoid feeling them, or I can feel them all the way through, embrace that what I'm doing is enough because all I have is my own offering, fall through them into grace and just be okay. And it's amazing to think how many mission projects and campaigns and big things from leaders, even if they're objectively good, may be unconsciously born out of those people's need to avoid feeling hard feelings on those Monday mornings. Hmm. It's a little too real right there. It's a little too real. <laughs> you had this uh, chapter about the thing after the thing. Mm. Is that right? You, uh, you throw shade at our guy, mutual friend Steve Carter, who wrote The Thing Beneath the Thing. <laughs> and I think there's a line there like, we all know about The Thing Beneath the Thing. Like I that, assume that's because now. we all read S- Steve Carter's <clears throat> book, not because you're you know, saying that's an idea that's below you, of course. Um, but you tell a story like you're working with these people who are you know, creatives trying to develop and build something. And then you talk about like, well, like, if this doesn't work or something like that. They, they all came to the statement, like their biggest fear is if this doesn't work, that that says something about who they are. Mm. And there is a vulnerability about what their failure does to them. Mm. So a lot of, we're running from the feelings we're trying to accomplish over these feelings. We're trying to accomplish out of this sense of like, I'm not enough, which ultimately what I hear you saying is like, you have to go into that before you can truly experience the grace that like there is enough for you. You are enough. Mm. Yeah. I I thought that was important, you know, because here I'm in, in that moment, you know, it was like, we were leading this thing called flow and it was, it was like, we're in a room with these high level project managers and financial advisors and freelancers and photographers, et cetera, et cetera. And when we were talking about what gets in the way of us creating more freely, 
they would say, well, what I'm scared of is this, you know, maybe what people will think what I'm scared of is this, this form of failure. But those things aren't actually the things. It's the thing after the thing. It's it's not failure that scares us. It's what we think failure says about who we are. Mm-hmm. It's not those people seeing that that we didn't do everything we planned to do. It's what we think them perceiving us in that way says about who we are. So that whole conversation, fear of failure, fear of what other people are going to think, actually is a conversation. The clarity of that was... The invisible ground beneath the, that discussion about creating was our insecure relationship with our inherent value. Hmm. I think when I I fail, that's the thing. The thing after thing is failure means I'm not I'm not a great creator, and that makes me less valuable. Oh, so it's actually back to value. Oh, if I disappoint, if I let people in closely and I disappoint them because I'm imperfect, and they have a negative view of me or they see my flaws. Them seeing my flaws, which is my fear, that's the thing. The thing after the thing is, well, if people see my imperfections, they won't want to be around me. If they leave me, that will make me feel, that actually takes away the value from who I am. No, that's not what it is. You will Mm -hmm. fail. You will disappoint people if you're going to lead. You're going to disappoint people close to you. That doesn't mean the relationship's over, and it doesn't actually take anything away from you. You know, like... Mm -hmm. I fail, I get humiliated, I'm criticized, and somehow none of this takes anything away from the substance of who I am. That is the Christ mystery, and that is the ground beneath everything we do is, you know, once you lead long enough, you want, you don't want people to suffer, but you're like, the life is right after that failure, because the thing you avoided forever, we treat failure like it's death, and it's not death, it's just painful. That's it. Mm -hmm. It you think you're going to spontaneously combust or the universe will implode when your thing doesn't work. And you know, when it, when it doesn't work, you know what happens? Nothing at all. I had a friend. Yeah. I had a friend who was, uh, creating something. Uh, he was starting a church and it didn't have the up and to the right trajectory that he wanted that, you know, most of us want from anything. It wasn't we do, on worthy podcast, which is straight oh, to the top. On. So that apparently come on now, come on now. That is, that. <laughs> no, come on now. But it, like it, it yeah, you're funny there. Uh, it, it didn't work out for him. And he was terrified. I was got you spit out your water there. That made me pretty happy. Um, he, had this event that he was going to where he was going to see a lot of uh, like people who knew him professionally who did what he did, and he was so worried about going mm. there because he thought he was going to walk in the door and everyone's going to be like, oh, there's so-and-so who's a failure. Mm. There's so-and-so who tried to do this thing, who, who went out on his own, risked this thing, and didn't even make it X amount of months or years. And he shows up, and what he realizes is that no one cared. Mm. Not that they were apathetic towards him, but they were trying to make sure that they weren't failing themselves. They were trying to keep their life together. They were trying to keep their family together. They were trying to do everything they needed to do to keep their head above water that they didn't have enough time to look around and go, oh, so-and-so is underwater because I feel like I'm just barely above water myself. And we build up in our head almost Mm. as if like everyone's just talking about what happened to this person and Mm. their failure. But most of us are all in that same sort of existential crisis Mm. of going, if I can't make this work, whatever this is, whether it's my family or I can't be a good enough parent or I can't be good at my job, then I'm going to be a failure. I don't have enough time to look at you if you're failing. Mm. Yeah, it's it, it makes me think of like being in high school and you go to like a high school football game and you walk or like a, like a, a baseball game, professional baseball game or whatever. Mm-hmm. And as you're walking up the stands, because, you know, it's on a downward tilt when you walk up, you're yeah. like, 
so self-conscious thinking everybody's just like gawking at you and you're like don't trip mm. don't make a fool of yourself don't make <laughs> eye contact and when you're young and you in, on, on your own path of growth you know you're still pretty egocentric that makes sense when because you do think you're the center of the universe unconsciously but as you get older and you move beyond that you're like most people don't have the energy to care <clears throat> first of all and second of all the real freedom is saying even for those who do and see you fail it still doesn't matter that's why in that chapter i'm like it's not that you're scared of trying it's that you still believe that if you try your hardest and it doesn't work out it takes away value from who you are that's not true it's not that you're worried mm-hmm. about disappointing people you respect if you let them in too close. It's that you're still convinced another person disappointed in you takes away something essential from who you are. And it doesn't. That's the mm-hmm. freedom. You know, that's why the comedian Patton Oswalt is like every comedian early on, I just want them to bomb. Because like, once they bomb and they feel all that and they know they're okay after that, it's like ba- basically, I don't know exactly what he says, but your fear starts to like lessen and lessen because that thing that you thought ended you, again, failure doesn't kill you. It just sucks and it's just painful. Yeah. And if you can sit with it long enough, all of a sudden this new moment's born out of the very place you avoided and next time you're less scared of it. And that's the gift of leading is you make you just make an ass of yourself so many times and make so many mistakes that eventually you're like, that's a part of this. You know, when someone else is like, Hey, you did this. I'm like, I know. And that's something I do. And I can't lead without accepting. I'm going to do it imperfectly. You know, and there's such yeah. a freedom in doing it from that place of authenticity instead of avoiding any negative feelings. Cause you go mm-hmm. through them, you know? So yeah. Yeah. There's uh a uh, jujitsu uh, professor's name is John Donaher, who he was getting his PhD at Columbia. I think it was Columbia, New York, in philosophy, and then fell in love with uh, the martial art of jujitsu. And he's one of the most prominent uh, instructors now. And what he does with the students is he, instead of teaching them like, hey, this is how you you know choke someone, this is how you submit someone right away, or this is how you get into a dominant position right away, he starts by taking his students and putting them in the very worst situation possible. Mm. And the very first thing you learn is how do you respond when someone else is in such a dominant position over you and how do you not freak out? And Mm. so his beginning introduction into the sport is how do you withstand being at the worst possible position? And then once you figure that out, everything else makes sense. Mm. If you can be okay to be in the worst possible situation. And I think it's the same thing. The stand-up comedian saying the same thing, the wisdom of Jesus. Mm, it's exactly. all like you've learned how to give your life away, learn how to die to yourself, and out of that you can experience resurrection. Mm. And so you talk about that in the book. Obviously, you're talking about that a whole lot now. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, after 10 years, uh, the community that you, you and your wife founded Close their doors uh, just a couple days ago, right? Yeah. And so you're you're talking to this congregation. I assume many of these people you've known for a decade or you know handful of years. When you talk to them about this chapter in the season of this community coming to a close, are you saying all this stuff to them, or what? What specifically are you saying to them about how you would want them to look back on this season and this chapter coming to a close? Yeah, you know Sunday night. For me, the real, we, after not meeting consistently, because Hawaii is one of the most locked down states, you know, during COVID, it was one of the most, Oh, it was one of the most locked down. We, I mean, we like got, we just kind of relatively recently got rid of mask restrictions inside, you know, relatively recently. And oh, like see, in this, Texas, we didn't. Like, we never got COVID in Texas, so <laughs> we never, didn't have restrictions. There's never any masks. Yeah, there. I was in, 
Yeah, here in Florida, we never got COVID, so we didn't. It skipped I'm over. Joking, I'm no, joking. it skipped over that yeah. bottom part of the of the of the mainland and went straight to us. Someone just like got their guns out and they shot it away. That's how we got rid <laughs> well, of. Well, I've heard that's that's doable if you have enough guns. Then the, there's a direct yeah, correlation of like no COVID, more guns. So I mean, yes, yeah, that that's it. That's what we do. But, you okay, know, so you guys we, were we in this. We didn't meet so, consistently, yeah. like weekly, for eighteen months. You know, and that's a sentence for most churches last, you know, going into October of last year, my wife and I had this sense of, okay, there's this, there's a chapter for imagine to be born, reborn, born again. That's what I would say. You know, we were still, you know, doing digital stuff and we would do once a month stuff, but obviously different and going. And we thought after watching the Michael Jordan doc, the last dance, my wife and I were like, this is the last dance for us. You know, this. For pastoring, for me, I saw chapters of as like two to three year chunks usually, and yeah. we're like, this is our last dance. This is the last chapter. So we're gonna give ourselves to it, put it in this place to have it option to give it options, and then we don't know what's gonna happen. But I'm definitely done with this role at that point. And I always sensed I would do this for about ten years, and about four mm-hmm. to six weeks into that, I was like, this is the last chapter, and it's not a rebuilding one. And it's a lot shorter than I anticipated. And my mind and heart started to shift towards the metaphor of like hospice care for the church. Mm-hmm. Because the energy that you relate to something when you're trying to prolong the life of it compared to the energy when you relate to a living being when you're accepting the death of it and just being present to it is very different energy. It's so different. Mm-hmm. And I started to shift to that and it felt very right. And we made that decision over Christmas, you know, and came back in January, the second or third week and announced to the church that like, here's where we're at. And we're going to do this last six month ish chapter of back at our home, just like drinks, eating, just hanging out, you know, just to, to go into the last chapter of this and this hospice care kind of a thing. And on a personal level that October to December, January ish was probably the hardest or one of the hardest seasons of my adult life. You know, it's not a small thing to, to make a decision to close something down. You've give almost a decade of your life to it's, it's not, but yeah. it, we led people through that and we were honest about it. And even the night we announced we were closing the people and the, you know, there's probably like 25 people there at the time stood up and gave us like a standing ovation, you know, mm-hmm. and we were met with like nothing but grace and support along the way. And, and we didn't just say, hey, we're going to close in two weeks because we're tired and it's hard. No, we were committed to be as present as possible to whoever was there. And so now like you're leading people through the death. You are not just talking about death and resurrection. You're leading them through that. So by the time this moment comes around and my book comes out two days later, I'm like, people would hit me up on Instagram. I think from a distance and kind of be like, Oh, Kev, you know, with like, maybe like, how are you doing? I'm like, bro, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy of like how this closed down. And I'm so excited for this next season. And that's not a trivial, like living in denial. It's no, the heavy lifting of acceptance and grief for me was, was those four or five months. And now the fruit is, is I can take another risk at 37. I can choose to start over. That's not easy. I can begin again as I'm approaching 40 and still feel really good about stepping to the unknown. So it was not just teaching people about it. It was like you're enacting it and doing it with people, which is powerful. And that's how we did that. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, you talk about you know, your uh, conversion was 
inspired by like this dream to have freedom and mm. this longing for peace. Mm. And it seems like, I mean, 20 years later, basically, you're in a situation where there wouldn't be much peace. There'd be a lot of anxiety and turmoil for, for most of us going through that. Um, but for you to have the fruit of this idea of this inner work uh, to, to pay off in this moment, it seems like, yeah, like this is, this is a moment where you see, like the proof is in the pudding, that mm. what this life of a mystic looks like is to withstand a terrible situation where most people would say like, this is awful, the worst thing ever. Um, you know, someone who started a church, did it for seven years. And, you know, if I'm being honest, like it, it didn't become like the numerical dream that I had for it to be. And to accept that for me was like, it's it's tough, but I think a lot of what you're describing is my experience of going, okay, I had to die to what I dreamed it to be early on. Mm. But in the same way, like this is any relationship. Mm. At first, you're in love with the idea of Mm. that thing, whether it's a spouse, a child, or even like uh, organization or church that you start. Mm. And then at some point along the way, you have to start falling in love with the actual person or the actual group, the actual community in front of you and go, well, now this is real because it's not this ideal, but it's reality that I'm stepping into. To. Mm. And like that, that takes some work, man. Absolutely. That and and for leadership, for transformational leadership of ourselves, that is the work. You know, it's like I say, letting go is beneath everything we do. I feel like leading, creating, and living your life publicly like that. We are constantly like so often we think it's a million things, but really there's just something really hard you have to accept and let go of. You know, beneath the surface, yep. we want to act like it's all these other things to avoid the death, like you talked about. But this constant, in every relationship, like you said, a relationship with your church, it's letting go of the way I thought it was supposed to be, accepting it for exactly what it is, and recommitting to create what it will become. We are always flowing between that. And so much of the resistance we feel as leaders is, if you can really get someone there, there's some version of that. You thought you were supposed to be further than where you are, and a part of you is worried that you're mentoring them, or like your friend at that event is going to think this. No, you just have to surrender what it was, and in, and like... That is the journey of, of, of the mystic is embracing and accepting and allowing reality to be exactly what it is right now. That's why at some point in the book, I tell the story about, I think it's in the people and patterns chapter, but I tell the, the Jesus story about, uh, you know, how many times am I supposed to forgive people at like 77 times seven? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. well, one really radical and I think very socially challenging way to read that is every time somebody wrongs you, you're supposed to forgive them. That reading of it is already massive. Every time yeah. somebody wrongs you, you're supposed to forgive them. Well, there, to me, there's an even more radical way of reading that text. It's not just saying every time an individual wrongs you, you're supposed to forgive them. It's you actually zoom out more and learn to embrace and forgive reality itself for being exactly what it is, which is imperfect and flawed. But it, that's what you were saying about the, your car being stolen. It's <laughs> like, this is the world that you live in. Right. So it's not like I'm not this is what I'm just saying, like I heard you already saying this thirty five minutes ago when you're mm-hmm. talking about I'm not mad at the carjacker. I'm mad like I, I'm accepting that this is part of the world that we live in. Mm. You can you know, one, you can be free from any resistance to pain while still feeling the reality of pain. It doesn't mean hard things don't hurt, it just means you have no resistance towards it. That's where people get stuck. It's not in the reality of pain, it's we resist it. So now we're stuck and angry and frustrated and resentful. No, you still feel it. That's why in that chapter, People in Patterns, I'm like, it's always, even in any time of forgiveness, it's always bigger than the person. Like, it's the person, but it's actually a pattern. It's a, it's the pattern through them because it's actually a pattern in life itself. So it's not just 
forgiving them for turning their back when I opened my heart and gave everything. It's accepting we live in a world where I can, where if I give everything, someone can still walk away from me, right? It's not just forgiving for, yeah. for them leaving when you were the one I counted on the most. It's accepting that sometimes the people you count on are not going to stick around. Like it's not the person, it's the pattern. And when you accept the pattern at a cosmic level, when it shows up in the personal again, you're not surprised and you're not stuck and you don't stay angry for more than, I don't know, however long it takes you because my car getting stolen is, why am I mad? Because this, this makes me feel unsafe. Well, the world isn't completely safe. This makes me feel like this. Well, people do bad things. Like if I can accept things, if I can forgive reality itself at a universal level and accept it for being flawed, then when any individual expression of that flawedness expresses itself, I'm not surprised doesn't mean That's it won't really hurt, but yeah. I'm not fighting it. I'm not resisting it. I'm not asking God why. I'm not trying to understand it. I'm just accepting it for what it is and forgiving them and really just forgiving life itself for being what it is. It's, it's, that's what it is. You are like joy. Like I said, acceptance is the container that holds together all things and shakes them up and gives it back to you as one thing, which is just your life that is able to hold together all those things at the same time. Oh, that's good. That's good. Okay, so we've had this conversation, and you've had a Peloton bike just over your shoulder. Come so on now. While I'm seeing the beautiful, uh, you know, water surrounding that state, which I can't say the name accurately, so I'm not going to try to again. <laughs> uh, I also see this exercise bike. Now, one of the things that you say in the book is that uh, you know, ten minutes of cardio. That's a, that's that's probably more than what you want to do. And so that's not cardio is not really your thing. And so you know, you do you. That's you. One of the things that in that spirit of honesty that I'm typically that's not really my thing is mushrooms. Mushrooms, mm. which you talk about in the book. And so that's typically not my thing either. And so let's meet halfway and try to figure this out. Like if you do more <laughs> cardio, I'm not going to do more mushrooms, but maybe we can meet in the middle and, uh, you know, drink a margarita. Like that's kind of like the, the middle <laughs> I was, ground there. I was there. about to say, uh, I have no idea what the middle of not doing cardio and doing mushrooms would be. So Hey. Yeah, I, I didn't know either. When I started that sentence, I didn't know where it was going either. So we're both <laughs> trying to figure that one out as we go. Okay, so a couple months ago, I'm with my friend Suzanne Stabile. And I, I guess it, I don't know how, it was a couple months ago. And so we're just talking, what's going on in life, blah, 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 all that stuff. And she goes, yeah, I got this book, and it's a guy, and he talks about mushrooms, and he wants me to write a, an endorsement for it. And he tells me, <laughs> she's like talking more. I'm like, I think I got a copy of that book already on my desk right now. Mm-hmm. And so... uh it, like it's in front of me now. So y- you tell the story in the book that you have this experience on mushrooms when you were, you know, 18, 19 years old. Uh, you have this life upending experience with a friend. I believe his name was Squirrel. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Any, anytime you have a friend whose name is Squirrel, weird things are going to happen. You should <laughs> just acknowledge that. <laughs> You go to your uh, girlfriend's house at the time. Uh, it's a crazy thing, and you have this life-altering experience. Now, uh, for those listening, let me just acknowledge this up front. I do not encourage people to have mushrooms to create a spiritual experience, though I know that there are some people in the larger world who talk about that as this revelatory experience. <clears throat> 20 years later, give me your opinion on that at this point in your life. On uh, my experience? Yeah. Well, one, you know, 
it's, to me, the, ch- the title of the book can be a bit, bit misleading in the sense of like, oh, mushrooms, maybe he's the guy who's a pastor now who's like, let's, let's all still do psilocybin for the sake of this. And it's like, I haven't done psychedelics Wait, do what? Psilocybin? Well, psilocybin is, the- is, like, the, is like the hallucina, like the, the, the property within the mushrooms. Oh. Yeah. So if you hear about okay. psilocybin I just learned research, something. Yeah. Um, P.S. P- that's how you spell it, psilocybin. And so... Like, my book is not prescriptive in any way when it comes to psychedelics. It's descriptive, and it's me just owning the fullness of my own story. And I don't feel bad about it. I think it's hilarious. You know, I think I think life is just strange and weird and bizarre, and that doesn't bother me. It fascinates me, you know? And so my experience is it's mm-hmm. normal to me. It's more normal for me to see mushrooms as a guy that ultimately led, led me to an awakening moment with God than to go to a youth group and have someone preach a sermon, you know, and tell me about whatever, because hmm. I didn't have that growing up. I didn't know those existed. And, you know, I tell a story t- for people to make sense of it in a chapter called Mushrooms and Missionaries, where when a young Thomas Murray, you know, Catholic monk, the great 20th century mystic, when he was young yeah. and, you know, closer and closer to his awakening experience, I think... This Hindu monk was visiting the States and lecturing. His name was Mahanambrata Brahmachari. And Merton tracks him down, somehow like goes to a lecture, finds him somehow, asks him for guidance. And what's amazing is this Hindu monk, with all of his wisdom, tells this young Thomas Merton to go read St. Augustine's Confessions and tells him to read Thomas Akempis' The Imitation of Christ. Let's say Merton reads those, they get integrated into his journey towards Jesus, towards Christ, and that is a part of his journey towards becoming the great Christian that he was. Well, I don't think it was in that Hindu monk's job description to be a missionary for Jesus, right? And, you mm-hmm. know, my, my uh, aside for a second is, you know, that word missionary is totally entangled in a knot of you know, white supremacist, imperialist, patriarchal, empire-building energy that I am have my own role of disentangling, and I hope all of the people also have a role of dismantling so we can continue to make room for this beautiful way of Jesus beyond all those power grabs and oppression. So, mm-hmm. let me say that. But So, I'm with you all on that. But the healthy part of that term is, well, a missionary... Is if, if a missionary is someone who points you towards the, the fullness of Christ, that's a beautiful and humble role to embrace the role of pointing to something beyond you. That's a beautiful thing. And, and the sa- I would argue that Hindu monk was a missionary pointing Thomas Merton towards the fullness of Christ. And in the same way, mushrooms were a missionary pointing me beyond themselves towards truth, towards the creator, towards source, towards life, and towards Christ. Because mm-hmm. when I was doing the mushrooms... Even as a teenager, I sensed along the way they were saying to me, yes, but keep going. It's like they were a signpost pointing me to the future I couldn't see, this freedom I desired and this hope I had for truth but just didn't know existed. It was like they showed me I had the, because it was the only time I ever felt that peace is when I was on mushrooms. So they showed me I had the capacity to be at peace, but I knew the only real peace that mattered was something that wasn't contingent upon taking them. It was had to be beyond them in order to be able to just be. So that for me was they were the guide pointing me beyond themselves and to make sense of even how people think about psychedelics. Now, when I had my first instantaneous awakening moment with God at 18 years old while I was on mushrooms, I never did any psychedelics again because for me to go back to the mushrooms would be going backwards. 
they were pointing me beyond themselves towards the source, towards truth. And once I encountered the truth for myself, why would I go back to the directions when I'm already in the ocean? The directions were pointing me to the ocean, God, love, life, grace. So once I'm in there, my task now is to live in, to trust and to become the ocean, not to go back to the signs simply because they guarantee me a little feel good experience. No, even at 18, I thought to go back there and do mushrooms would be to betray the very spirit I encountered that gave me everything. And it wasn't because a pastor told me about conviction. I felt that within myself and this in the journey that the spirit had me on. So that's a little glimpse into it for people. Okay. I, I was wondering in the same way that I was wondering how I could finish that sentence about meeting in the middle. I was wondering how you can make a conversation about mushrooms that was both honest to your journey, but also didn't make me feel guilty. Like I'm encouraging 18 year olds to go do drugs. And that was a good answer. Like, I, I feel like we're, uh, yeah, I'm good with that. I'm yeah, good with that. I, I mean, that, I, I say that in the book where like, you know, I'm ambivalent, you know, you could say about, all the resurgence of psychedelic research right now, you know, would I, could I say any psychedelics are hundred percent evil? No. Cause I had my experience. Are most of the people I did psychedelics with enlightened gurus, leaders for justice and compassion in the world right now? No. You know, do, no. do I, do I recommend them to people? No. But if someone is going through them and they're asking me about them, well, we can have that conversation too. But no matter what, the real work of transformation is always after the Friday night experience. And that's true for church. And that's true for highs at camps. The real work of transformation is always after that. It's how does that which you saw on the peak become who you are on the path? The transformation is not going back to feel the high of that peak. It's to actually do the real work, spiritual practices, meditation, transformation, doing the real work of working for justice, compassion or whatever. The journey is always after. And so for me, unless someone's really doing that work, I always have this suspicion of like deep down, people just want to trip out, man. And I'm not going to judge you for that, but let's not equate that with like a one night stand with spirituality is not the same as a life devoted to the way of Jesus, to the way of Christ, and to commit it to be that kind of a person in the world. And that's true for people who do that through tripping and for people who like to go to big religious events, you know, and feel some sort of high too, because I see a lot of similarities there. Dude, dude, that one night stand with spirituality, that one night stand with Christianity, like that's, that's a really accurate description where we push for a lot of times to have people to get that one night stand where you raise your hand, you come forward, you do the thing. And then afterwards it's all right, go back to your normal life. And that, that that's not healthy for anyone. Mm, that doesn't bring mm. life to anyone. So, uh, do that spot on, uh, Kevin, this has been a blast. Come on, uh, y- your ability to manipulate me to get you on the <laughs> podcast, uh, was exactly what I needed. And I, I just want to say... I do want to make you feel... I, I want you to know, though, because within that, just like how you felt good about not stealing my car when you stood me up, I want to say about that, yeah. you were the only person I took that much of intentional energy to like <laughs> manipulate and be charming towards to get on. So I just want to put that out there, and that's true. So you were the only one who got... I feel the, special. Who, did, who I did that with, yeah. Okay, I was wondering, like, are you doing this to everyone else? Am I just one no, of many? Did you send You're Suzanne, just... like, one of those weird texts yeah. about she's the queen How of d- the Enneagram? <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, I feel special now. Uh, dude, seriously, this is really, really thoughtful stuff. I appreciate it. And, um, man, best of luck on this, uh, this next chapter of your life. And uh, the book, The Making of a Mystic, uh, y'all go get a copy of it. Don't do drugs, but uh, read the book. <laughs> and 
<laughs> and also, when we meet in the middle, I will say I'm I'm more of like a dirty martini guy than I am a margarita. So just keep that in mind. Okay, I'll be in prayer about whatever that means. So, <laughs> all right, man, I appreciate it, dude.